Hello and welcome to the first edition of Poetry Non-Stop. I'm Patrick Widdis and each week I'll be bringing you conversations with poets to showcase their work and inspire you to write poetry as well. My first guest is Jamie Osborne, a Norwich-based poet, translator and climate activist. I've heard him read on several occasions from a series of poems he wrote about his time as a volunteer at a refugee camp on the Greek island Chios in 2016. He joined me to talk about that experience and the poems that came out of it. Um, Well, this was in the summer of 2016 when lots of refugees had been coming over from mainly at that time from Syria to the Greek islands, to Lesbos, to Chios, Samos. And up until March, uh, March of that year, they had been going straight, staying one night in the islands and then going straight on to Athens and then on through Europe up into Germany, Sweden, wherever they they needed to get to. Um, And in March 2016, the EU made a deal with Turkey that said that they were going to close the borders. And so everyone who arrived in the Greek islands was held there for they didn't know how long which very quickly led to overcrowding and terrible conditions because no one was, the governments weren't prepared to, to look after them and weren't really doing much to prioritise looking after them, to be honest. And so, uh, certainly it's uh, dominated the uh, news. What yeah. motivated you to actually go out and get involved like that? People need help. If someone comes and knocks on your door and says, I need help, you don't just slam the door. Well, some people might, but I don't think people should and, and I don't think most people would actually slam the door and, and walk away and that's what people are doing they're coming knocking on the door of, of Europe and Europe's a we're a rich place um, not everyone in, in Europe is wealthy unfortunately and there's a lot of inequality here but um, but I was lucky enough to have a summer free before I started working for a living um, after finishing studying I had some money saved up so I went was it the first time you'd done something like that? It was the first time I'd done that specifically. I'd um, worked with refugees in Cambridge before, particularly with my friend Ninab, um, who's also a poet. This was really a very moving experience. He was an Assyrian Iraqi, so not Syrian, Assyrian, which is an ancient, ancient, rich culture. And he's a poet, and in 2014, late 2014, when... ISIS, Islamic State, whatever you want to call them, took over um, much of northern Iraq. They drove out the Assyrian people from their homes, and the Assyrians are a Christian minority in northern Iraq. And they were persecuted for being Christians by by ISIS and forced to flee. And there were many poets among them, friends of Ninib, my friend. And they continued writing in their tents, um, in this sort of flooded tents on the Nineveh plains, um, on scraps of paper. And Ninib came to me and said, these people are writing this, can we do something for them? It would mean so much to publish these poems. Um, so we translated them together. He did the the literal versions, the bridge versions, and I made them work as poetry in English. And they were then published in Modern Poetry and Translation. And um, we did a, a 24-hour vigil and reading for them, and that was a really very moving experience because at the same time as we were doing this reading in Cambridge, they were reading in the Nineveh Plains. Um, I spoke to one of them on, on the phone and, and they said that it turned all their sadness into happiness to know that their poems were reaching across across the continent. Great. 
So how did all that prepare you for going and working with refugees in Greece? To be honest, it didn't. Um, because, well, I mean, it did in the sense that I got to meet people, know that things like expression and some kind of human dignity are important, are important mm. to people, which was what was really lacking in, in Greece and Kiosk at that time was people were being made to wait for two hours in a queue just to get their little bottle of shampoo. And when they got to the kiosk where they got their little bottle of shampoo were being shouted at for jumping the queue or whatever, it, people weren't treated as though they were humans in very, very poor conditions. And I think it's really important. I think what a lot of volunteers were there trying to do was just to go and treat people as humans, show them some respect. So um, what kind of duties did you have? Well, it, it was a very chaotic situation. There weren't any set duties, really. Um, so I was distributing food at, regular, I mean, at lunchtime, every sort of mealtime, breakfast, lunch, dinner, doing clothing distributions. But then I, I spoke, a number of people I spoke to said that they wanted more books to read. And so I set up a library, got some books from Book Eight International and got some books from them and set up a library. We really struggled to find a room. So in the end, we, we had to do it outside. And that was mostly for the children. There were some adult books, but it was really for the children. The first time we did it, the kids would be there for 10 minutes before they started hitting each other, hit, throwing the books around, smashing up the books, because they had had no, no routine in their life for years, for four years, some of them, um, four or five years, and were traumatized. And I'm certainly not saying it made everything better, because it didn't, but by within three weeks, three or four weeks, they were there for three hours, non-stop reading, quietly, concentrating on this thing, because it was something for them, something for them to do, and something engaging, and there were real books in their hands with stories and pictures, and it's that something must have been a wonderful thing to see. Yeah. 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 So how long were you there for? I can't remember exactly how long, because I sort of stayed on longer than I intended, then got ill and had to come back. But it must have been two and a half or three months. Right. Uh, it was from end of June to the start of September. I can't remember when in September it was. So was it uh, your aim to produce a set of poetry uh, when you went out there? No, it wasn't. Um, no. Poems are a very undeliberate act, I think. Well, you can make them deliberate afterwards, and I think they require a lot of deliberate and careful thought, especially on a quite a sensitive topic like this, where there's a lot of issues around appropriation, and I think those deserve consideration. Mm. Um, but I don't think poetry comes by setting out to write something about something. Sure. So when did you begin writing? October to no October or November two thousand and. 16, so a couple of months after I came back, um, I had a sudden burst of writing poems, and poems for me always come in bursts. I mean, I write every day, try to, but most of the time, 320 days out of 365, that's editing poems or translating. But when the inspiration comes, inspiration's a funny word, but um, it starts as a sort of beat in your head, in my head and that eventually comes to have very often between um sleep and waking as a sort of semi-dream state 
Mm. Um, and that then comes to have words that fit that rhythm. And then I'll have to write that down. And those will come in batches of three, four, ten, even. Um, and then I'll write those down and then work on them and edit them and edit them for up to two years, three years. Mm. So how many years, poems did you end up with? I'm still writing them. Mm. So I don't know. Yeah, a good 20, 30 maybe. So uh, maybe uh, talk us through one of the poems? And... I'll read one that was... One that was actually the first the first one that actually made it into a full poem. Um, there was one that came before this, and I sort of knew something was coming then, that there were poems coming. But um, that first poem never made it. Um, but this one did. And it's just, again, it's a strange poem and not at all my voice. I should say that I use real people's names in here, but they're not actually, they don't correspond to the to any re- real people, if that makes sense. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's called No Landings Yet. Alicia rounds the camp. 5am the call. Voice slurred and fuming as she buggers down the beach. At Mantomados, she reared a boy in each hand. Ali Reza, darling, you're a thief. Returns, the manager, orders toilets to be dug, tables repaired. At her command, the gate is given a fellatial lick of paint. Fuck it. Her bosom, neat, smart. From her shirt front, she pulls a $50 note. Ali Reza, where can you look when she passes without so much? Just a glance, hopeful like us. Yeah, so um, how did that poem begin? One day I had a beat in my head that, that went to the rhythm of that first line uh-huh. and then those words came in, Alicia rounds the camp, 5am the call. I have no idea what that actually means necessarily. Almost all of my poems, very few exceptions, with the initial impulse seems to fit into 14 lines. Sometimes I have to stretch it to make it 14 lines. Sometimes I have to cut it down a bit to make it 14 lines, but 14 lines seems to work. They're not sonnets. This is not no longer a 14-line poem, but 14 lines seems to be the right length, and it's, it requires that arbitrariness as well. It's, it's like coherent arbitrariness mm. in the 14-line poem that there's a very nice balance to it, but it's also why 14 lines you have to Mm -hmm. it pushes the language and it pushes you as a as the poet to bring things up and bring things out onto the page or into the voice because i write aloud i'll walk around reciting things to myself until there's a version to put down on the page and so that's how that poem and all my poems start really interestingly with these kiosk poems with the first batch of them, um, which were written between November 2016 and December, end, January, early January 2017, the first lines of them never changed. With all my previous poems that I had written, the first line was always the one that got chopped out. These ones, the first line has never changed in any of them. Um, I don't know why that is. Were there any experiences which you were particularly compelled to write about? I don't think writing i don't think i write about experiences none of the things in these poems well they all they're all true but they didn't happen um i think that poems can be more truthful than reality because they create 
like any literature, any work of art, they create, they convey the mood and the, and they are born out of a sense of a mood and of a intimacy and the borders between people. And those aren't necessarily that mood and intimacy and sense of the other mm. is not something that's deliberate, but it's, it's not something that happens. If you wrote down exactly what happened, I don't think that that is creating that oblique look at things. There's a sense, a few people have said this to me, that a writer is always on the outside. I think that can be an outsider to one's own experiences. And there's something interesting that, um, that Michael Schmidt, who's a, and a very good editor who's helped me with these poems, who said that a poem should be an experience, not a report on experience. I think that's very true. So how have these poems helped you grow as a poet? I think, yes, they have a different voice, a different tone, and maybe a bit more anger in them than my previous poems, which were all set in Namibia, where I spent as a teacher. I mean, I think they're still... I've always been interested in the otherness and the encounter between people and peoples and cultures, and but I think these poems have a bit more anger and a bit more of an activist sense, perhaps. I don't think that, having said that, I don't think you can set out explicitly to write about a particular topic. I do think that poetry is very important in an activist sense. It broadens and looks truthfully at situations. I think that's important because otherwise we're going blind into very dark times at the moment with the rise of right-winning extremism and with um, the normalization of right-winning extremism and with uh, climate change, which is looming, which is happening now. Um, shall we look at uh, another of your poems? I'll read a more recent one that's um, maybe got a bit more of a narrative thread. It's the first in a series that um, that are forthcoming in, in PN Review. And it's from The series is called Kiosk, A Case of Knives. Ahmed sitting with his fist in the books. Sixteen weeks he's been waiting, handles the stories all of swords and fish, of what they eat beneath the waves. Dead men's fingers, jelly deals, plastic casing for a glass eye he found on the beach. His mother is where? In the pages he holds as if they might turn to salt, bloom like crystals, like spreading ink. Ask what he's reading. He'll break your teeth. Oh, I love the details in that. It's a very vivid character. Um, so was there anyone particular you were thinking of uh, when you wrote that? This is sort of what I mean, that I use re- real people's names, um, and I have a very distinct image of a particular boy sitting, actually it was originally with his head in the books, but um, it's not a particular person. It's a very distinct character, certainly, but it's not a real person in the sense of reality. Yeah, um, so just sort of taken that initial image and built it into something. I think fused it with the situation and with the mood and with my own prejudice and encounters with what I as p- person and as poet perceive as the other. I think that people in poems, less so in other forms of literature, but people in poems, actually, I think people 
in the world generally, and this is why art is so powerful because it's a, a heated, uh, heightened version of this. But people are not distinct individuals, but we absorb from and are part of a wider living world that is made up of intimacies and borders. And I think that there are other senses at work that we don't always know of when we are looking at something intently or reading a poem or writing a poem. And those other senses bring in things from the environment, the environment in the sort of broadest sense as in what's around us, and bring those into the people in poems. Mm. Um, are there any uh, poets or writers that have been influential in writing these poems? Everything, every conversation I ever have, everything I ever think in some way comes back to Elizabeth Bishop, who is such a beautiful and wry and clever and feeling observer. Observation is something I'm very interested in. Mm. Um, everything I ever think about comes back to Bishop and I owe so much to her. I think also I'm, I, I do owe a great deal to the Assyrian Iraqi refugee poets that I, whose poems I worked on and other, other refugee poets um, because I feel like I'm writing so um, I mean, for example, Fuad M. Fuad, who's a, a, a Syrian a physician poet from, from Aleppo, or Yusuf Kasmir, who's a Palestinian poet, now teaches at Arabic in Oxford. And I think their work is... My, my poems are very, very different from their work, but I think their work is very important as an expression of what people go through in displacement. And I don't think their work is in any way necessarily influenced my poem, so, so maybe I'm not answering your question, but I would direct people to them. And um, are there any techniques or practices that you use for writing or developing your poems? I can't remember who it was. It, was someone, it might have been Sharon Knowles or someone saying that um, any any good poet should, or any good writer should go, like, every few years throw out all the rules that they've made themselves before. Um, I don't think that's a deliberate thing, but I think it does happen. So when I, was in, when I initially first started writing, everything would be 14 lines. Then uh, Vani Capaldeo, who's another person I should have mentioned as a big influence on me, they taught me to break open lines, use white space, break open a voice, introduce multiplicity of voice, and and question the I in the poem. And then that was in my Namibian poems. And then the early Kiosk poems were very much free verse, I think written out of anger and an attempt to get rid of any irony. I don't like, I do like irony, but irony felt inappropriate for the situation. Now I've been working so the, this recent series, um, I'm putting all into syllabics, so they're all, so the poem I just read, the Ahmed sitting in his, with his fist in the books, all of those poems are nine syllables each line, um, which feels like a very appropriate, um, arbitrary counting, reflective of the arbitrariness of the situation that the refugees found themselves in and the way that they were forced to count days mm. pointlessly in a way repetitively in a constrained situation well as you know um we like to uh 
ask our guests to provide a prompt for listeners to write to. Um, so can you tell us about uh, your prompt? I think I've mentioned a couple of times that I'm interested in the ideas of borders and intimacy. And it's something that I think is very fruitful for poetry because where does the poem end and where does the poet begin? Where does the act of writing end? How do you... You've got this thing on the page or in the, I think more importantly, in a voice in the in the air. And it is something that's conveyed. You can touch, feel, it, it resonates. As a, that's why poems are powerful, more powerful than prose, is that they, they vibrate, they have a, a rhythm, a pulse that goes into your stomach. And that enters other, other beings um, and is born out of other beings. And there's that intimacy, and yet in order to do that, intimacy implies borders, borders between beings. Borders is obviously a very politicised thing at the moment. Um, It has always been, probably. It's very much linked to the refugee issue, and so I think it's, in that sense, I think of writing as activism, is is that it questions borders. I don't know if borders are necessary, but they exist. Um, and I'm interested in the ways that intimacy crosses over borders. Yeah, it's interesting that you'd be, it's something you'd think they're two separate things. But um, actually, when I uh, came to approach this prompt, it reminded me of uh, somewhere where the two things do exist. Um, it was something I heard about on uh, This American Life, which, if you know about podcasts, you know, probably know This American Life. Uh, if you uh, don't, then I recommend it. Um, but they had a piece about a place called the Haskell Free Library, which is interesting in uh, ways that uh, I hope this uh, poem will show. And It's a sort of place where... Um, borders and intimacy do actually exist together. So this is my poem. Uh, It's called Meeting at the Free Library, and I've prefaced it uh, by saying, The Haskell Free Library and Opera House straddles the international border in Rock Island, Quebec, and Derby Line, Vermont. It is the only library in the world that operates in two countries at once. The books are in Quebec. The entrance is in Vermont. It's early, and Arezu, an Iranian sophomore in Michigan, sits at the edge of her adopted country. She dares not cross the faded line, cutting through the stacks, in spite of a smiling have-a-nice-day border guard outside the building. At 9.15, her mother comes bursting in from Canada. They muffle their sobs in each other's shoulders. Here they can talk, touch and smell one another for a few hours of face-to-face time in this library in two nations and none. They are not the only ones. Three generations spill over two tables. Twin brothers divided by red tape and trumped-up fears reunite. They remain all day beneath the no family meetings signs. A staff member offers a tissue to a woman as she clasps the hand of her wheelchair-bound father. Too soon, Arezu and her mother are back outside as the librarian hangs the closed sign on the doorstep of America, 
where one must remain and the other can't enter. They embrace on the border of potted plants, then part, carrying the warmth of that final touch like contraband. Yeah, I like the way that, that the country names fall in there almost as if they're villages, towns. Her mother comes in from Canada, as if walking in through the door from Canada. And that's what countries are, is they're constructed places that we've given a name to. They're not real, and in that sense they exist very strongly, because there are concepts that we can name and enter, like you enter a house. I think that's, that's, that's nicely done. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that observation. Um, and um, I uh, look forward to uh, hearing what uh, others uh, come up with. I think there's lots of different ways you can uh, take this. Uh, it could be literal borders or something more metaphorical. Yes. Yeah, um, do you have any, any tips on how to approach <laughs> writing from this prompt? might be fun for people to play around with syllabics. Nine syllables I found works well nine syllables to a line read Marianne Moore which is brilliant Mm. Um, yeah certainly giving yourself a structure to work within is very good for focusing but um, yeah uh, do uh, get writing you know see what comes out I enjoyed writing this because it's uh, I think in some ways there's a lot more I could do with this but um, it got me thinking more about something interesting I'd heard and writing something which I uh, wouldn't otherwise have written so um, have a go and um, do share what you've written and look forward to uh, seeing what, what, what you come up with. As would I. I look forward to reading poems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I sort of feel like uh, there's still a lot more to discuss and uh, maybe I have to uh, come back and do another episode sometime. Yes. But it's been uh, fascinating uh, to talk. Um, uh, have you got another poem to finish with? Yeah, I'll read a... I always finish readings on this poem. I think it's quite a nice poem to read, to finish on. Um, it's actually set in Namibia, um, where I think I mentioned earlier I spent two years as a teacher. And you can see that my writing has changed. It's called Makey Sings. At nightfall in the lean-to, Makey sings the colours. She sings the houses, white over green. She sings the grey and crimson crests, the lowery birds. She sings the camel thorn, silvering leaves. She sings the fire, she sings the clouds, she sings the smoke and our frightened eyes. She sings the night, she sings the ash, she does not sing the sunrise. She sings the hunt, she sings for sugar, she sings the bottle stores. She sings the dead man in the road after the thunderstorm. She sings the storybooks, the lion and the mouse. She sings the net and the jackals laugh. She sings a blue sun, she sings a yellow sea, she sings of green grass and a face lost in grey. She sings our questions, how long is home? She sings of flying, she sings of sleep. We take her sleep. We take her voice, we take her photograph. From her we take a dream of night, a dream of fire. For her, we dream that this is everywhere. We dream of shelter, we dream of clouds. We dream of children waiting in the cold. We dream of songbirds, we dream of ash in the stars. We dream of little Makey, and Makey sings.
That was Jamie Osborne. Thank you for listening to this first episode of Poetry Non-Stop. Please subscribe, write a review and tell your friends. Your support really helps. And do send in your poems on borders and intimacy. I look forward to reading your responses and sharing some of them online and on future shows. You can email poetrynonstop at gmail.com, post them on the blog or share them on social media using the hashtag poetrynonstop. For more details on that and today's show, please check out the website poetrynonstop.com. If you would like more tips on writing poetry, then please consider purchasing my book, also called Poetry Nonstop. You can find it on Amazon or there's a link on the website. Join me again for another episode next Thursday. Thanks again for listening and keep writing.